Welcome to Sweat the Technique, a podcast in which veteran educators from some of the most successful schools in the country discuss how to get better faster in all walks of life, from parenting to sports to business leadership. Today, my guest is one of my co-hosts, Ravi Gupta, who ran a high-performing network of charter schools in Tennessee and Mississippi, and is now the CEO of The Branch, which is a nonprofit media company that hosts this and a number of other podcasts. Ravi also sends out a weekly email called Imbroglio about hot topics in and the future of public education education. And today we're going to talk about a piece he wrote recently called One New Skill Per Year. Ravi has had an eclectic career working for the Obama administration, running charter schools, and of course, leading a media company. And today we'll discuss how he channels his diverse interests into a process by which he masters new skills. So Ravi, in your Imbroglio article, you say you've always loved school, and it seems like that's probably rooted in a love for learning in general, maybe even an obsessive one. Has that always been the case for you? Yeah, it's true. And it's my mom is really my inspiration. My mom, because of the way she grew up, she never got a four-year degree when I was a kid. So she had an associate's degree and was a nurse. And then she just preached education constantly. And that's in part the reason why I wound up going to college and law school. But after I graduated from college, she went and finished her bachelor's degree and got a degree in history. And then she got a master's degree in history and now teaches college history at night after she works as a nurse during the day. And so she's definitely like my sort of mascot for lifelong learning. And so a lot of this has to do with her. Like she just showed me the way and showed me it's never too late. Like I'll just keep doing this until I can't learn anything new. And in the article you said somewhere around five years ago, I think it was, you decided you're going to learn one skill, you're going to focus on one skill per year. Why'd you narrow it in that way? Or did that represent a narrowing? Yeah, it was interesting. I, I think I spent most of my 20s in huge chunks of time. Like I spent probably 26 to 32, basically working on one thing, which was how to run schools like you did in a similar period of time for you. And I think that's one thing that I couldn't have done in just one year. You know, I do think the critical first year of learning how to do a school was my fellowship with Building Excellence Schools. But I think later on, like in my 30s, I realized that there were a bunch of things that were just dreams, like wanting to be a writer, wanting to surf, that I now had enough money and time to consider. But more importantly, I had learned enough about learning from running schools that I was like, oh, I actually have a sense now about how to go from zero to intermediate in a short period of time. But I figured I'm like a pretty excited person about new things. And so I try to discipline myself by saying, you cannot pick up a new skill until the year is out. So actually, as I'm sitting here, I have my guitar sitting next to me as like a symbol of what can happen when I finish the novel that is this year's focus. But I can't even touch the guitar until the end of this year when I finish the novel. And if I don't finish the novel, I don't get to touch the guitar. So it's like a way of disciplining myself because I get really excited about new things pretty quickly. So it's novel writing now, I take it. Mm -hmm. What was the first skill you acquired? The sequencing was powerlifting was my first year. And so that year I I started going to a CrossFit gym to learn like basic lifts. I went away to a, a A big theme for me is camps. I think camps are really important for adults. I went to this place called Power Monkey Fitness Camp, which our friend Sadie Durant, who's in our little fitness crew that we have created. And I went there and I learned from like Olympic lifters and gymnasts how to do that. And I think from that perspective, two things came out of that year. I mean, three things really. One was just a sense of community that you build. I try to pick new skills that introduce me to new people because I think that's one of the most thrilling things. And Sadie's a good example of like a lifelong friend now that I've made in that process. 
Two is that it helped me develop what is now our, actually how you and I became close is I developed my own fitness community out of that process because I was inspired by what they did at Power Monkey. So I've created my own group of friends. There's about 40 of us, I guess now, who follow the same program, have a WhatsApp group. We track points and all of that. And that's become such a central part of my life. And then third is I just entered, you know, all these years later, about a year ago, I entered a powerlifting competition and won it in New York City. So there was like three tangible, really important things that came out of just that first year. So that was year one. How much weight does one have to powerlift to win a powerlifting competition? Well, in my weight class, my deadlift was a 500 pound deadlift was my deadlift. I mean, these are not like Arnold Schwarzenegger type Mr. Universe right. powerlifting, but it was, it was meaningful because the key is to try to give yourself like enough stuff for your own story, right? Because if you're just, if you're not just doing it alone and you're not tracking certain things, you don't have certain goals, like I'm going to enter this competition or I'm going to create this new community, then it, you could kind of lose track of that year. And so when I think of that year, I'm like, oh yeah, like those are three tangible things that I got out of that year other than the skills themselves. And obviously powerlifting I also picked because, you know, you're a fitness obsessive, you know, as you get older, you lose muscle mass. Right. And so I try to pick things that are very age appropriate. Like you also have to think about what you're going to put down with each thing you pick up. Right. And so eventually I put down basketball, which is something that's so meaningful. And it's been like a central part of my life, but I kept injuring myself playing basketball. Right. So I was like, what can I replace basketball with? But we'll talk about, I picked up two new sports in this process that I replaced old sports. With. So when you set out, let's use powerlifting as an example, did you set a goal in the beginning? You've talked about some of the things that you got from it and some of the goals that you may have hit, but were those goals from the outset? I've changed my approach a little bit. I would say that my first year was a little bit less formulaic than it's become now. Like now I go through a whole process where the first month is learning about, actually Scott, the guy I interviewed about ultra learning, he has a very similar way of thinking about it than the way I've kind of stumbled upon, which is I kind of spend a month learning about learning. Sometimes it's the month before the year. So I'll read books about it. Like if it's tennis, I read the inner game of tennis. I mess around and I'll, I might experiment with a little bit so that I know whether it's truly a skill I want to do. And I try to just learn the framework for that thing before I even dive in. And then I learn. And so I think in that case, what I would have done differently was probably do a lot more research on the front end. What I happened to do that year was just walk into change gyms. Essentially, I was doing like a very conditioning focused gym, walked down the street to a powerlifting gym, hired a CrossFit teacher who I knew was good. Because basically you can go to CrossFit, you could learn some bad stuff or you could learn some good stuff depending on who you're seeking out. So I basically asked around and said, who's really good? And I was able to convince the gym to give me some free lessons if I committed to a year with them. And she basically taught me each one of the lifts. That's something I was going to ask you about. So you mentioned a coach, basically a teacher, and it seems like you've kind of stumbled upon some really incredible people along the way. But in the instances where you didn't have that person available, how do you figure out who's going to be a good coach? Yeah. What's interesting is I look back on every skill. I've found one every year. That's really awesome. So that first year I had her and then some others. The second year was the probably the most isolated because it was COVID. <laughs> so the second year I did screenwriting. And that was a very interesting year. And I think the year that I realized, okay, I'm going to do this every year for the rest of my life. Because that year, I go away at the beginning of the year to Kauai in Hawaii with a buddy of mine. And we both were like, we're going to write a script. And he's actually in the industry. He's a director. And I'd never written a script before, but I always wanted to write this story about Staten Island that I wanted to write. And after two weeks, we both finished. I sent him my script. And then within a few weeks of that, COVID hits, right? And so... I had this rule that I would just send the script to one person every single day. 
just to keep it alive. I didn't have connections in Hollywood or anything like that. And what happened was a friend of mine's sister worked at Imagine Entertainment, which is like the premier production studio. If you look them up there, everything from Friday Night Lights to whatever. I mean, they're huge. And so they loved the script. I was getting kicked all the way up to the heads of Imagine Entertainment. And I'm unrepresented. And this is the middle of COVID. So I'm like sitting in a house that I'd been renting for months at this point. I was like in the beginning, it's probably like April or something. And so this is April into my second year, and I'm talking to Imagine Entertainment about the script. And I wound up using the script to get me representation from creative artist agency, so the biggest Hollywood agency. This is like an unheard of level, like obviously. So I got super spoiled the second year, and CA has represented me ever since, and I've written scripts that I've gotten paid for, whatever. That script didn't get bought by Imagine, but now I'm writing as my novel, which is my, my fifth year thing, and they're representing me on that. And so I, that year I spent on my own, basically. That was the year I probably didn't have any coach. So I, I wound up writing tons of scripts. I wound up learning how to write treatments. I wrote, a, I, I don't know, some like six shows that entire year just because it was COVID. I had nowhere else to go. And I pitched a ton of shows, met a lot of Hollywood people that wound up leading me to write other things for other people. None of my stuff ever gets sold, but I wound up writing other people's things. And it wound up leading me to adapt a novel into a screenplay that I just sold. So I would say that was like the most colorful year because <laughs> that's a crazy attention grabbing success. Well, and a lot of people spend their whole careers trying to figure out how to get published or trying to get published. Obviously, they saw something in the script itself. So you talked about how you got people's attention, but how'd you learn how how to write a screenplay specifically. I imagine it's very different from other kinds of writing that you've done over the years. Yeah. Well, one thing I've learned is that I'm more naturally a screenwriter than a novel writer, in part because I'm better at dialogue, probably because I, I watched way more TV as a kid and talked a lot and grew up around a lot of people who just talk a lot than I was like a reader of prose and, and literature. And so as I'm writing this novel, it is a hundred times harder because you could be like, hey, like, you know, like a scene in a bar, like if you're writing it in a script, it's like, interior bar. <laughs> I mean, you could add a little bit more, but it's all about the dialogue and the story, mm. right? Which I think I'm better at than the light is glistening off the glass and all that. That is like a million, million times harder. But I think like the way I learned was I read some screenwriting books at the beginning of the year. I find that they were helpful, but actually the most helpful screenwriting book I ever read was called The Hollywood Standard, which is just about how do you, I think the thing that trips people up is just the sort of nature of the language and the structure of a screenplay. And Hollywood Standard is just like, here's what the scene heading needs to look like, yada, yada. And that actually helped me more than any of the other books about the art of screenwriting. The thing that helped me the most is I just downloaded like the 30 movies and TV shows that I respected the most, read every one of them, and it was COVID. So I would like watch a movie, read the screenplay, and then- in some cases, watch the movie again with the screenplay in hand after I annotated. And that helped me a lot more because then I was able to say, oh, this is what a director needs. Because a lot of times the screenplay is written by somebody different than the director. So you get the sense of, oh, this is what people are looking for. Too much detail they don't like because the director has ego and they want to make those decisions too little and they don't understand your vision for the story. And so I wound up learning that there's a certain perfect amount of detail that they're looking for that I love about screenplays because it allows you to really focus on the important parts of a story, well, at least the parts I find most important, which is like, what are the characters doing? What are they saying? And what little elements, like one or two things can you point out in every place that they go that are the most important details? And did you get that feedback or insight from editors or did you have somebody working with you or did you just come up with a script and start sending it out? Yeah, I actually, you're reminding me, I'd forgotten about this. So I wrote the script, I sent it to my buddy. You know, what's crazy is I was embarrassed to send it to people at first because I'd never written anything fictional before. 
And I remember this was like, we got back from Hawaii. I wound up sending it to one person a day. And I was expecting like a polite, oh yeah, that's nice. And I was getting people being like, no, no, this is awesome. And I was like, very encouraged by that because I know the difference between a fake. I've, I've definitely written things before. People are like, oh, that's great. And then you never hear from them again versus people like, oh, no, I want to help you. This is really good. So it's like, okay, maybe I'm on to something. And I also had sent it into this place called The Blacklist, which you could pay them to have their professional or amateur, but also screenwriters review your work. So I think I went through one or two iterations of that before I even sent it to any of my friends where they would send me feedback, they would score it. And what I was seeing from those people is like comments like, oh, this is like really, really close. And if you fix these things, yada, 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 you'd go from like an eight to a 9.5 or whatever their scale was. I don't remember what it was. So I had all this feedback in the beginning that made me feel very confident. Now I would say that it can go both ways because I've had situations where I've done that kind of thing and I feel like I'm not hitting it. And it kind of puts you in a black hole of sort of self-doubt as well. So I can go both ways. But in that case, it actually helped me get it out. And then once I started getting into hands of industry people, and they were you know, not just saying nice things, but picking up the phone and doing things like represent me or putting me in front of major producers, that was like the biggest confidence boost ever. And whether it's this or powerlifting or any of the other things that you focused on, how much time are you devoting to this? Because you have a day job. It's a big one. So how much time are you spending? Each year is a little different. That year was the easiest. Also, I don't have kids. Yeah. So that's the biggest thing. And that's what I talked with Scott from Ultra Learning about, which is that starts to narrow your time. At that time, I had a lot more time than I do today. So this year has been an interesting year. And I can share some funny sort of anecdotes about how I'm balancing my current stuff. But that year, there was no going out. I was renting a house for half the year in Nashville. I wound up going to Costa Rica later in the year, almost zero distraction outside of work. And my work was something that came very, very easy to me. I was running Arena, which is a political organization that was just second nature to me. And I had a very well-established team, a lot of resources, and that was just humming along. So I had infinite time to work on this kind of stuff and a lot of people supportive around me. The third year, so as I was doing surfing, similar story, right? At that point, I actually had left Arena after the 2020 election. So I took up surfing, which I think is the hardest of all five. Novel writing is hard in a way, but surfing, I think, has the most amount of variables that you have to master and be very intentional about to do well. Like you have to be by the ocean. You have to go out every day. You have to overcome certain physical fears and mental hurdles to do it. That was the year which I had maximum amount of time. And then I think since then, the last two years, I've had less time because I've been launching the branch and just been generally more busy. So I've learned how to be a little bit more efficient, but also things have been harder. But surfing was a good example where I had a coach, this guy, Tommy Potterton, that year. I went down to Costa Rica at the beginning of the year spent two weeks at a surf camp right away and decided to stay. And I basically went out surfing every single day and he was starting a surf school. So I was able to get him to video me because he wanted to like, you know, use me as a test case for his business. So he would video me every day I would go out and then he'd send me a video where he'd talk over the video and say, here's what you're doing. So I was able to go from completely never having touched a surfboard in my life to intermediate by the end of that year with his help mostly. I spent most of that year in Costa Rica, but even when I got back to New York City six months later, and that was, you know, this is high to COVID. I was working remotely from there. I was doing things like going out to these artificial wave pools that they built, where they built one in New Jersey and all that. And so like each domain has its own way to like speed up the learning process. Like if you're playing tennis, which was the next year, you can go to a place with a ball machine or you go to a camp or whatever, like every little thing like you have to find those kind of shortcuts to give yourself many at bats as possible and surfing 
thankfully has built these things like wave pools, which I've now been to many different kinds of wave pools and have used that as a really important mechanism for learning. And what does it mean to be intermediate in surfing? Yeah, so, and I'll direct people to this podcast I did with the guy who runs the surf school that I went to in the beginning, this guy, Rue Hill, where he talks in painful detail about that, which like, you know, I love, but if you're not a surfer, it's a lot. But essentially it means like when you start surfing, beginner means you can stand up on a board, you can paddle out past the big breaking waves and you can catch it basically coming towards the beach. Now an intermediate means you can start catching the wave sideways. So like if you see a surfer, they're kind of going along the wave as it's breaking and you can change directions in certain ways, like what they call carving and whatnot. So you can come back to the wave as it's breaking if you go too far ahead of it, or you can slow down using certain maneuvers so that the breaking part of the wave stays with you. And then there's a whole bunch of things. I use this sort of delineation of a true intermediate with one maneuver called a cutback, which essentially is you're going in one direction, you turn back towards the direction that you were coming from, and then as you hit the sort of breaking part of the wave, you then turn back again. So it's basically a double turn. If you do that, I consider you an intermediate, and a lot of people do. It's basically like the difference between a level two and level three surfer and the sort of framework of zero to four. And that's basically when I called, started calling myself an intermediate. There's other things like barreling or something which would make you an expert, which is something that I recently did for the first time. I still wouldn't consider myself an expert just because I did it once. But yeah, there's like certain moves that you're like, okay, that's a move that if you can do that pretty consistently, that makes you an intermediate. So it sounds like you're not stopping at intermediate or you don't intend to, but this is no longer your focus. Yeah. Okay. Good point. Yeah. I try to keep every skill like under my framework and you know, one day I'll probably write a book about this, but under my framework, you do not have to keep doing the thing you started that. That year, but you have to finish the thing you started that year. So you have to do the whole year with that thing, according to my made up rules. Right. But all five of my things I still do. So I think novel writing will be the hardest to continue just because it is a lifestyle that is very, very difficult and crowds out basically a lot of other hobbies. Because if you're not writing for an hour a day, you're not making a lot of progress. So that's the hardest one to keep. I still want to keep doing it. I just have to think about how I keep it in my life. But the rest of them I do, like tomorrow morning, I'm going surfing in a wave pool and I've spent the last few winters in Costa Rica. But surfing is one where you can actually improve a bit without having the sort of intense, whatever, three days a week or daily practice. Is that right? Yeah, but I do think it's hard. Like, if it weren't for the fact that I still go back to Costa Rica for a big chunk of the winter, I wouldn't progress in my surfing. And so I still take pretty extreme swings in terms of my learning. So I went to this world famous wave pool in California, Kelly Slater's wave pool. I've now done it two years in a row and it is not a cheap place to go. And in part, I go there because going there is like 10x what you get from having a really good day at the beach just because of the nature and consistency of the waves and how long the waves are. It's the length of a football field. And so I do like really extreme things to try to keep up with some of my skill sets. Like a skill that I did the year after surfing was tennis. And I once did, I think, three tennis camps in a row <laughs> the year after. But I like it. I think it's like some people are like, that's crazy. But I just, I'm like, if you like it, you like it. I like being obsessed with things. The feeling of not knowing something and then being intermediate to me is my favorite skill. I like it better than being intermediate to expert because intermediate to expert is a slog. It has its own fun parts to it, but it takes forever. And the winds are very, very small. Whereas the winds in zero to intermediate is like every day you're going out at certain periods of time and some of these skills and you're learning something completely different. You know, I'm in year two of tennis right now. And yesterday I was messing around in tennis just for fun with a friend of mine. And just because I was a little bit deliberate about what I wanted to get out of just going to swing the racket, 
I picked up one new thing because I watched a YouTube video and went out and played. Like, obviously, that's absurd. Like, at a certain point, you reach, you can't do that. Right. How'd you choose your tennis coach? I've gotten lucky. You know, so I talked about my surf coach, who's, like, amazing. This guy, Tommy Potterton. And I deliberately went to the best surf school in the world and is where I found him. And he was then starting his own. So it's not an accident. But then, incidentally, the same person who read my script and sent it to her sister is the person who recommended that surf camp. So I owe a lot to this one friend who happens to be very well connected. So shout out to MC. But the tennis was, I was out surfing at the end of my surf year. And there's this guy that was in Costa Rica, this Costa Rican guy who I just knew as this like really friendly guy in the water, but I didn't know him. Like in surfing, sometimes you just will know somebody without knowing them. So I just knew him as a guy who we just kind of were about the same level surfing and we would always go to the same surf break. And one day I just started striking up a conversation with him and it was literally at the end of the year. And I was like, man, I was like, do you know anybody who teaches tennis around here? I was thinking of learning tennis because I think there's some of these beautiful tennis courts in this town that I go to. And he was like, yeah, I'm a former professional tennis player and I'm the Davis Cup coach of Costa Rica's tennis That's unreal. <laughs> and he doesn't teach <laughs> novices. But he was like, let me take you on as an experiment. So it was in November. I, I think I was in Costa Rica for two weeks for that period of time. That was the beginning of that. So I did two weeks with him straight where he just did two hours a day of his like very intense tennis coaching. And then I came back because I usually spend most of December and January there. And then he and his co-sort of coach is this woman who was a Chilean professional tennis player who learned in the military. And so she has a very militaristic way of teaching tennis. So those two basically took me on as a project. And so that was the beginning of that year. And then I wound up going to a bunch of tennis camps here in New York later on in the year. And that was a fun year. That was this past year. I just started playing tennis last year myself, not in nearly as focused of a way, but I played sports my whole life. And it was pretty clear to me, especially compared to other beginners who didn't play sports, how big of an impact playing other ones had on my ability to pick up tennis. Like the swing is very similar to a golf swing or a baseball swing, you know, you know where the ball is going and roughly where the bounce is going to lead. Whereas like those who are new to sports altogether and start with tennis, I think have a much slower road. And that's kind of confirmed in that book, Range by David Epstein. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Where he kind of talks about kids being better off when they have a wide range of activities rather than just focusing on one sport from the day they're born until they're experts. Have you seen the benefits from that? For sure. Beyond powerlifting, you've played a lot of sports in your life. Yeah, I think like growing up the way I grew up, which it sounds like you grew up the same. I, you know, I played football, I played basketball, I played baseball, I boxed, I lifted weights as a kid. So like basically all that kind of stuff came together and I was never great at any of those things. I was just good at them all, right? Good enough to play. Like, so when I you know, it was in college and law school and people were like, oh, we're going to play tackle football or we're going to go shoot basketball. And I could play. I'm not going to dominate or anything like that, but I could play. So I think like that really helped later on. Like I think basketball in particular and tennis, the footwork and moving around and cutting and, and all that, I found very helpful to have a basketball background to do tennis hand-eye coordination, obviously. And obviously having lifted weights and played football helped a lot with the power lifting and all that. I would say that surfing is the hard one. I had friends who skateboarded and all that. I BMXed, so that helps a little bit. But surfing is, unless you've snowboarded or skated, it's kind of way different than anything else. Although there are certain things that are related. Yoga is really good. Incidentally, the power lifting helps for certain things. I was going to say, being able to deadlift 500 pounds probably helps you uh, stand up in the water. Yeah. <laughs> the deadlift can help in certain ways, right? Like the right. deadlifting can help you when you have big waves 
and you just have a stronger base of stability. Upper body strength is almost useless in surfing. You have to, it's like actually to a certain point it's helpful and then everything else beyond that is actually unhelpful. Because the heavier your upper body is, the more you sink. And you want to basically a heavy lower body if you look at a lot of these surfers and basically a very nimble upper body. Like There's like not a lot of muscle tone on a lot of surfers who are professional surfers, but their legs are very strong and they're very flexible. And so, yeah, I would say surfing pushed me to think a lot differently about my fitness in, in a weird way. Whenever I'm not lifting a lot and I feel like I'm quote unquote out of shape, I surf better because I'm not as stiff and like I'm not carrying as much bulk. So it's an interesting mental game because then I wind up justifying not working out as much when I shouldn't because I'm like, oh, I'm just helping my surfing. <laughs> right. <laughs> On tennis, what did the coach do with you? So you have, you have this coach who's himself a pro and hasn't worked with novices before obviously something that he did work nonetheless what did he do yeah and shout out to him i don't forget if i said his name but enrique naranjo is a great guy but he had all these interesting techniques that each one in and of itself was just fun like he did this thing where i had to stand on one leg when i was doing a split step for people who play tennis as a way to just push off with the leg like i would have to just basically like working on just like basically hopping as I swung my racket. So I would use my lower body strength more. If any, if you can kind of picture what I'm talking about, he did that. He had this contraption that I basically like, it kind of connects to your shoulders and your neck and connects to your thighs that keeps you low. You literally can't get up. So I was like basically swinging a racket with this contraption that was keeping me low. So he had all these little tricks that in and of themselves were interesting and helpful, but then they gave me these mental models. So if I'm like doing a splits, I think about, when I had to hop on one leg. And so then I try to emphasize that leg so I have more power in that leg. Or if I'm doing a backhand, I remember, oh, I remember that time when I was doing volleys and backhands and he made me wear this ridiculous contraption because he says I was standing up too tall. So it just reminds me to get shorter or we'll spend an entire day. And I think this is from The Inner Game of Tennis, which is a great book, even if you don't like tennis. He had me just think about the spinning of the ball. Like I started off with like really good hand high coordination in part because I was just concentrating on that in the beginning. And then as he started giving me more instructions about other things like around footwork and everything, I started missing the ball and rimming the ball. And so we spent an entire day where he's, I just want you to focus on the spinning of the ball. Right. So he, he had like an intuitive sense of how to just pick one thing. And, you know, recently I came back, it was like just at the end of the first year. So this probably technically wasn't even in within the first year. And I just grabbed him to learn the um, slice. And I had been having trouble with slice. And he had me work on one particular move, which is like almost unrelated to the slice, which is like if a ball drops shallow right next to the net and you basically scoop it up and kind of like slice it from the bottom so that it basically bounces right over the net, but just like you're right next to the net and you're just kind of hitting it from the bottom when you go up. And he basically worked me backwards from that to a true slice. So he was like, practice this, practice, which actually turns out is a harder shot than a slice. But for some reason, he felt correctly that that was going to be an easier shot for me to figure out. And so then we did that. I moved back a little bit. I moved back a little bit, moved back a little bit. And then I was able to develop a slice. So that was, he's just got a good sense for that. And that's the thing when I say learning new things, that stuff is so fun. Right. When you're just like, I have a whole new stroke I can learn. Once you're in advanced, you just can't do that. You mentioned that he had a knack for picking one thing to work on at a time. And I found that with coaches that I've had to be critical and also even with our teachers, right? Like when we're coaching a teacher, we give them one micro goal and it might take them a week. It might take them a month, but they have one goal 
goal that they're focused on from sort of a list of goals. And then when they're done with that, we kind of move on. It's just too hard to focus on more than one thing at a time. I think that's a theme here too. For sure. It's a sign of a good teacher, honestly, is like, I think a sign of an inexperienced, eager teacher of anything, a coach of anything, is they give you a ton of different pieces of feedback. I've had surf coaches who are like that, where the, I would leave the session and I would have 20 things and you can't do it. The really good ones are like, all right, here's one thing. And in the back of their head, they probably have a list of 20. <laughs> and they're I'm just sure, like, all right, yeah. you're going to do this one thing. And I think about it with my staff, because honestly, like in any project I've ever worked on before, and I'm still guilty of it from time to time, you just pile on and say, all right, there's like a million things wrong. And sometimes you'll just unload it because you're frustrated, but it's just unhelpful. It just doesn't work. Like a good example is what we do for our flagship show, The Lost Debate, is we have a meeting on Fridays where we pick like one to two moments of the past week show to focus on and be like, all right, let's listen to this and see how we could do it better. Like a good example is I think last week we were talking about the lead into a story where there's sometimes we'll kind of sound low energy leading into a story. So we'd be like, all right, let's, and then we'll listen to like Bill Simmons or somebody lead into a story and be like, all right, this is like a really good example of leading in. And that's going to stick. Whereas if you're like, here's 20 things, it ain't going to work. And another thing that has helped both in the classroom and on the playing field for me is the use of video. I went to a golf lesson and I thought my swing was perfectly emulating what I was seeing from Rory McIlroy. And then I saw the video of my swing and it looked terrible. Terrible. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And the saying in, in golf instruction is feel isn't real. And I'm wondering if like in tennis and maybe powerlifting, has video been part of the coaching? Yeah, painfully part of it. Powerlifting less so. I probably should have used it more, but it, it's less so. And I actually think my powerlifting videos would probably be the least embarrassing just because like I think I probably is less to screw up there. But it gets to a larger principle, which is um, what's his name from This American Life? Ira Glass. He has a saying from the sense of writing and being a creative of like, you have good taste, hopefully, but because you have good taste, you know you're your own stuff is not good and it's very demoralizing. And I think of that clearly in writing, which is what I'm going through now with my novel. Like when I read my novel, I'm like, ah, I know what great is and I know this is not great yet. And that can really, really mess with your head. And then obviously it's great when you think you know what great is and, and it is great, which happened with my screenplay, I think. That's true of sports, right? So like if you're watching your video of yourself playing tennis, you've watched a good person play tennis, you've watched a good person play golf, I know what a great surfer looks like. I know I'm not a great surfer when I'm looking at my videos. So it can mess with your head. And Rue, the guy from the surf camp I was talking to, he always jokes about how, because he has this amazing video team and photo team. He's like, photos are for your friends. The videos are for you. You know, it's like, if you look at my Instagram, I rarely post videos of anything because you can make a photo look awesome. So I could be like, right. oh, yeah, I'm riding this huge wave. And yes, I am riding a huge wave, but like, it's not as fluid as when I'm reposting like a professional surf or whatever. When you do get a good video though, it is the greatest feeling in the world. Like when I went to the surf ranch back in April, that was the first time I was like, basically all these videos I would post, like I was more fluid there than I'd been. And I was like, this is a really important moment that I'm actually have video that I'm willing to share with my friends, because it's like most of the time I'm generally just taking screenshots of it. You drew that analogy to writing the novel. And my experience, I've never written anything like a novel, but like writing speeches is something I have to do quite a bit. And you're good at it. I think that's how I ever heard your name was you'd given a very famous with an education circle speech at some dinner, I think. And that's, I think the first time I came across your name. Well, I spend a ton of time on them and that's kind of where I'm going with this, which is 
by the time I've edited it a hundred times, I'm now like, I think this sucks. This is going to be terrible because it's like you're almost too close to it at yes. that moment, right? Yeah. It sounds like that it's not been the case with your screenplay, but... No, but it actually was how I felt about the screenplay when I sent it off at first. Like I was very worried about the reception to it, even though it's, it didn't take me long to write it, but it took me a long time in my head to write it because it had been on my mind for a long time. And then I did go through some editing cycles and all that. So I was worried about it because I was like, you just know you know where this sort of spackle is, you know, you know where you had to fix things and where it was bad. And then you're, it's impossible to be objective about something like that. And I worry about that with my novel right now, because my first three to four chapters, I have rewritten so many times that it's, I'm a little concerned about that. Yeah. And so that's why you need good people to read it. This year for writing the novel, I do a class every Tuesday night with about 12 people. And we each read our sections and you learn a lot through that. It'd be like, oh, like this is people who have no reason to tell me good or bad things. And so what they have to say, really, you have to listen to it. I mean, you don't have to, but it's like, it's important to hear what they have to say. So you've been doing novel writing this whole year. Yeah. This year was a little bit of a slower start in part because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with this year. And the novel was hard to come to because I had actually started writing at the year of the screenplay. So I was like, ah, is it cheating if I started it then? But I truly didn't devote myself that year to doing it. So I was like, yeah, and I do want to finish it. And I have an agent who really wants it. So I'm like, well, this is a good thing to focus on this year. So yeah, I basically picked it up in earnest in January. And it is, I think, the most psychologically difficult to stick with because I like sports. So like the last two before this were sports, like even surfing, which can be very scary and demoralizing at times, the feeling of doing it is inherently fun. Whereas the novel, it's rare that I walk away from the writing process and I'm like energized. Often I walk away from it. And I'm like, oof, that was- It's a grind. It was a grind and I'm busier than I've ever been. So like a good example was like uh, Tuesday. I was literally, because I have a job and I'm also just like busy, I have a 5,000 word count goal that I owe to a person in this class every week and I owe it on Tuesday nights. I was literally riding in my Uber on the way to an event, going to like a fundraising event and I'm riding it and then I'm riding on the way back and it's just like, you're just kind of fitting it in when you could fit it in, which is in itself fun. And like, I think like if your focus, like a good example is language, which I haven't done yet. If your focus gets you to, instead of like sitting on the toilet or on the train, just mindlessly scrolling and instead you're on Duolingo or something, right? then that's a win, right? And so that's kind of what the novel has done for me, which is like these pockets of my day where I otherwise wouldn't be productive, like nighttime or super duper early morning, which is when I do my best thinking, but I'm just gonna wake up a little earlier. Or if I'm in an Uber, or like I was waiting in the airport the other day, like literally as the plane was about to take off. And I was like, if I can just write a hundred words right now, I'll feel really good. Cause that's a hundred less words than I'll have to write on Monday, you know, before my deadline or whatever, then that's a win. And I think that's one of the things about like being obsessive for a year over something can really help you get more out of your day. So again, people study this their whole lives and don't get published. This is new for you. I was never a good writer. I was a speechwriter for Susan Rice. At that point, I was still not a good writer. I think I got into law school on the back of my chemistry grades. <laughs> so I was never a good writer. I was the kind of person when they would sign books in high school, I would read the back cover, skim it, write a report and bullshit. I was not like a very well-read person back then. I didn't get good grades in high school. I went to State University of New York for undergrad and where I studied mostly science. I did not have a lot of writing experience. I had to teach myself to write as an adult. And I would say I'm still teaching myself to write. And 
what I've realized, and actually I realized this recently as I was going through the process of getting feedback on my novel, is you have to lean into what your story is. And for me, given that's my writing background, my writing style can have a sort of stripped down, almost Raymond Chandler type feel to it, because that's naturally how I write. And I think I get myself into trouble when I try to be like using tons of vivid imagery and metaphors and stuff that just don't come naturally to me. Then my writing actually sucks, like truly sucks. And I think I got into that a little bit recently where I was sharing my earlier drafts with some people and I was getting two pieces of feedback that were contradictory. One was on the positive side, oh, like I love how to the point your writing is, which I thought at the time was like a diss. It was like a backhanded compliment. It's like, oh, you're just like not developed enough as a writer, which actually could be what people are saying. But now I realize I was getting another piece of feedback, which is I want more metaphors. And I kind of only listened to that because I didn't take seriously the first piece of feedback. I thought it wasn't a real positive feedback. So what I started to do was go through some of like the critical early chapters in my book and I added a lot of just stuff. And then as I was like sharing my chapter with like experts in this group, every single element of those that I added, they saw right through them. Yeah. And I was like, that's just not who I am. And so- You should write how you talk, basically. Yeah. And like a lot of writers I've realized are not Ivy Leaguers. You know, some of the best writers we've ever had are people who are just really observant people or people who have like a good internal rhythm that they follow or whatever. And that's kind of my mission statement for the rest of this year. I'm now like, where am I now? I just hit 55,000 words last week of what is supposed to be a 75,000 word novel. We could probably assume I need to get to 90 because I'll have to cut down. I'm like rounding the bend here and I just need to follow my own rhythm and stop trying to emulate people who have a different skill set than me. And did you start out with just like, I have this story that I want to tell, or I have these characters that I want to talk about or a theme or something like that? Like, where did you start with this? Yeah. The thing I'm writing now is funny because I've written a bunch of treatments for screenplays that were different than this particular story I'm writing about, which is the same thing from my original screenplay that are just completely made up. This particular novel though is based on like a bunch of collection of things that I either experienced as a kid or happened in Staten Island as I was a kid. And that kind of pulled them all together into one story. And the sort of main premise is that I grew up basically in the shadows of the largest garbage dump in the world in the 90s as they were closing it, which is the Fresh Kills landfill. So the novel is really about a group of kids growing up in that setting as organized crime which, you know, people probably know this is very involved in the trash business as organized crime was trying to keep the landfill open. So it's all about like a clash between these kids and the organized crime elements. And to me, there are various points when I've tried to like spruce up the ambition of the project and make it like almost like fantasy or whatever, like, oh, maybe the kid gets a superpower or whatever. And that was like actually previous year's iterations of it. But then I realized I don't know that genre. I don't read those things. I don't know how to write that book. And also you want to keep it pretty simple on your first book, which to me also could make it a fun story, which is just keep it in the real world in the kind of stuff that you've read before with people that are recognizable to you. Like a kid getting a superpower because they like stumbled upon the wrong toxic chemicals, a fun story, but you've never seen it and you don't read that kind of stuff. So you probably should stay with it. Maybe me. better for your next screenplay. Yeah, that probably would have sold. I'd be sitting in my $10 million mansion today, probably if I'd written that story. So we talked about powerlifting, tennis, screenplay, novel writing, and surfing. Okay, so those are the five you focused on for the last five years. Do you know what's next? Do you have like a list of things that you choose from? 
Yes. So on the list right now is playing the guitar, which I have next to me. I think that'll be next year, but it can always sit here for another year if I find a better one. I want to fly airplanes, but I have to be in the right place to do that this year because of I've been tethered to New York more than than in previous years. It wasn't the best year for that because it's hard to get affordable time in the air. Like I know if I want to fly airplanes, I probably have to go to a place like Palm Springs, like in the wintertime where it's like clear skies and it's probably pretty cheap. And and it's just fun to have these dreams. Like even talking about it, it's like I can imagine my next five years and one of my years will be the year where I live in a place like Palm Springs and I can fly airplanes. So flying airplanes is one Speaking another language is definitely on the list, like Spanish or Italian. Spanish for obvious reasons, because I go to Costa Rica Italian, just because that was the first language I tried to pick up as a kid, and I just never took it seriously as a kid. That's where they teach you in Staten Island. Cooking is one of them. I want to learn to be an EMT one year. <laughs> and there are some of them that I think could mesh with professional goals, which is, I don't have a hard rule against something being professionally relevant. So a good example is, if the right moment came I would love to run a small business. Now, one could say I've run small businesses before, like the fitness group you're in is a small business, but like truly a small business, like buying a gas station. So if the right opportunity came in the right year, I would do something like that. And the funny thing about this is, you know, I'm learning to write a book as part of this group. The group I'm in is actually mostly nonfiction people who write. It's run by Neil Strauss, like the guy who wrote Creati the Creative Act with Rick Rubin and all that kind of stuff. He's like a specialist in nonfiction. And so part of what I'm doing is I'm learning nonfiction, which also helps me with my running the branch also, because he was a New York Times writer. But the fun part of this also is like, part of what's motivating me with this novel is like, well, okay, I want to write about writing about it. So like, I'm like, I can't not finish the novel because then I can't then write the next book, which is about having done all these things, right? So it's like, it helps you. It's almost like having a documentary crew following you, which is like, you got to live a better life if people are following what you're doing. So I try to motivate myself that way. And so I think... Once I get to like six, seven years and I can imagine a book, I'll probably write a book about this whole concept, but I want to wait until I have enough years under my belt and enough things to show for it. Thankfully, I've done certain things where it's like tangible and reproducible, like the fitness group or winning the powerlifting competition or signing with CA, where it's like every year it gives me something where I could actually go to a publisher where they're like, oh, you're not just making this thing up. Like you've done these things that are verifiable every year so that it makes for a more compelling book and somebody reading it is like, there's like something catchy about it. Cause you know, often what you need is, and Strauss is a, is a master at this, is like some like radical story to tell like at the beginning of something, which like I, each year gives me at least something that's something beyond just, hey, I got good at this thing. There's like a point in time where you can be like, oh, I got this thing published or I got signed or I, you know, won this competition. And like, whenever you can do that, for the sake of telling the story is always helpful too, you know? So in your article about one new skill a year, you looked at all of what you've learned from doing this and said, there's four main themes, right? You go to camps, as you mentioned, you've had coaches and it's the four C's, camps, coaches, community, and commitment. You commit to an entire year. It seems like maybe one that's missing or maybe embedded in those is some form of accountability. Or accountability, as we would call it for the C's. Right. Accountability. I got to plug that in chat, GPT, so if you can give me a C <laughs> word for that. But the accountability is huge. And honestly, I haven't always gotten it right. The novel writing has been where I needed it the most. I didn't need anybody to hold me accountable for tennis and surfing. I loved it innately. This is the first year that I've truly needed to hold myself accountable and it has been a struggle. There are weeks that go by where I wasn't hitting my goals and I've been on a bit of a roll lately. And nobody's seeing those goals except you, right? Like this is your own goals, right? Until recently. Now in this group, 
I both have somebody in my life who I send a chapter to, or it was a chapter, now it's a certain amount of words because I was starting to game that and write very short chapters. So now I have a word count goal, and I've been doing that for a little while now. That's been working with somebody who's kind of a stranger who I just, who's in this group, and she holds me accountable. We have like a little penalty that if I don't hit it or whatever, but it's more just like self-worth and motivation to get it done. And this has been the first time where I've needed that because I've picked things before that I just love doing intrinsically. So this has been the year where I've had to pull out a lot of tricks. And worth just honestly, like this will be the most interesting, like in the grand scheme of the story, if I wound up writing about it, this will be the most interesting year by far so far, in part just because of how hard it has been to motivate myself to do it, especially because my job involves a lot of writing. So I picked something that's like, you know, at the end of the day, I've written a blog post, I've maybe written an external article, I've written emails and memos and I podcasted and then I'm like, oh, now I got to write my novel. <laughs> you know, it's a different thing if you're like, oh, I'm going to go out and surf and play tennis. It's like a good balance to the thing I'm doing during my day. So in a perfect world, I would have picked a different skill for this year, but I didn't want to wait another year to write this thing. I want to finish it. When you pick up a foreign language, this one is close to home for me because I married into a Korean family and committed to learning Korean at some point but have not and want to learn it. And it's not quite as easy as Spanish, perhaps. But where would you start if you were me? You know, it's funny because, you know, when I say like the beginning of the year, I started to think about doing a different skill. I, I was thinking of doing Spanish and I went through the meta learning process for that. And so there's a lot there. I would say that Scott Young's ultra learning, he has an interesting way of looking at it. But there's this spaced repetition process, which is one thing I learned in that meta learning process, which is you have to kind of treat vocabulary acquisition differently from the rest of it. And the best way to learn vocabulary is this sort of concept of spaced repetition where like there's algorithms for how often you're exposing yourself to knowledge. And this drives with when I used to have to memorize stuff for science. In a weird way, it's not only diminishing returns if you expose yourself to the same piece of knowledge over and over again in a short period of time, sometimes it actually is counterproductive. So you could use these space repetition softwares that know exactly whether you've gotten something right or wrong the next time they need to expose you to it. But the big thing is, the thing that we're getting wrong about languages, according to these theories, and it seems like most of the experts agree on this, is that you should not be like cat gato, right? You should have a picture of a cat with the word in the other language so that you associate the word with the concept, not with the English word. Instead of translating. Yeah. yeah. And that's how you do the space repetition cards. The card should be picture with the word in the language and English should be nowhere near it, according to these experts. So that's on the vocabulary front. And then just getting really into cutting out the nonsense in your life, whether it's Instagram or whatever people's hangups are. In some cases, podcasting, which I know a lot of people think is productive, but that should be replaced if you're obsessing over learning with the thing that you're learning, right? And then the hard part is exposure, right? So you have to create exposure in whatever practical way it is. So if you're single and you've got resources and you work remotely, you should go live in the country and not allow people to speak to you in the language other than that language, no matter how hard it is. And the people who've written books about this are radicals with this. They're like day one sitting with their vocabulary book and not allowing people to speak with them in English. Now it's very hard. Or like in your case, like in your family, you know, your wife only speaks to you Korean on certain days of the week or something. I don't know. But like you create some rule like that that, that forces you into a day a week or two days a week of being essentially in a homestay family, you know? So those are like the two things that popped out to me. And that when I pick it back up, I'll give you a bunch of book recommendations because I wound up buying a whole bunch of books and reading them. And they're fascinating. I love, love, love reading about people who are obsessed with this stuff. <laughs> they're so nutty. Some of them make me look like, 
Like, honestly, some of these people are truly, truly dedicated people, and I love that. I know Tim Ferriss has one on, I think, picking up either new skills in general or maybe language specifically. The four-hour chef. Oh, that's right. It started with cooking for him. So, yeah, I'd love other book recommendations. I am a voracious reader, so when your novel's ready, I'll be looking forward to it. Oh, man. That one I'm afraid to send to people because I know (laughs) it's not great yet, but we'll get there. I'll wait till it's ready. Okay, Ravi, what else would you like people to know? obviously subscribe to Imbroglio where you can get more information about these kind of topics and others in education. What else would you like people to know? Where can they find you? Yeah. At some place I'll find a place for all of these other things because I have like a huge, huge, huge library of videos, things, and I could turn into tutorials and make into something bigger. But at the branch, Imbroglio and this podcast where we talk about these types of things. But if you like them, just let me know. We do more of this kind of stuff for sure if there's a lot of interest there. My sense is just like, don't give up your dreams is my big thing I tell people because like surfing is a good example. I grew up in Staten Island where the minute the sort of momentum generation came about with Kelly Slater and these guys, my friends and I grew up in a very like alternative punk rock kind of culture where we were like loved all that like surf aesthetic, the lifestyle. The minute I saw it, I knew I wanted to do it. It took me 20 years to get to it. And the minute I had the opportunity to do it, I seized on it. And everybody's got a dream like that. My mom wanted to be a history teacher and she waited till her kids were out. But like, don't give up on those dreams and don't compromise on it. And, you know, if you've got people in your life who you're able to set boundaries with, communicate to them, hey, like if you're married or whatever, like I'll do Saturday morning or I'll do Saturday afternoon, we split and that'll be my three to four hours to do that thing, you know, or hey, we're at the place now where kids are growing up, let's move to the beach and let me learn to surf. Whatever it is, like, Don't compromise and don't think that because you're of a certain age or because you started something late that you can't do it because there are certain things that are too late, right? I'm not going to be an NFL quarterback, but most things, by and large, you can find a way to tackle a skill or a piece of something pretty late in life. Definitely. Okay, Ravi, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for coming on your own podcast. (laughs) Yes. Oh, I forgot to mention, get out there, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. We give this to you free. Right now, we don't have any ads. So just get out there, say nice things about us because it matters a lot. Great. Thanks, Ravi. 